BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Guys, today's episode is a big one. Hands down, the most well-known, famous, loved everything guest we've had on this show. I mean, she doesn't even need an introduction because everyone knows who she is. But today we are speaking with Katie Couric. I cannot believe it either. She is currently the co-founder of Katie Couric Media with the Wake Up Call email distribution and Next Question podcast. She is doing incredible things there. She is also a journalist, New York Times bestselling author, co-founder of Stand Up to Cancer. She was the first woman to solo anchor a network evening newscast. She served as an anchor and managing editor of CBS Evening News after 15 years as a co-anchor of the Today Show, which is where we all probably know and love her from. She also just wrote the book Going There. which is awesome. I actually listened to it on audio, which we get into in the episode, but I highly recommend you guys checking it out. I don't want to waste any more of your time because I love this interview so much. So here we go. Here is Katie. Come on in, take a seat, pour a drink, pass one to me. Frickle foodie and friends, talk about life sides and ends. Throw away your hesitations, have a filter conversations. Katie, I'm so excited to have you. I know I just kind of spoke about a few connecting people we have in our lives, but I didn't share that technically we met when I was in in embryo, embryo, in utero, because my mom was shopping for maternity clothes at Pee in the Pod. And someone came up to her and was like, do you want to model for the Today Show? We're doing a segment on maternity wear. And she was like, thank you so much, of course. And she showed up and she says this all the time. She's like, I was the only pregnant woman. The rest were models that had stuffed bellies. (laughs) And she's like, I was the only one that was fully pregnant. But I need to get the footage because there's footage that I think she has of her on the Today Show speaking with you when she was pregnant with me. That is so funny. So I how know. many years ago was that Cameron? So that was 91, which I think is right around when Ellie was born, right? Yes. Ellie was born in July of 91. Oh, I and was what, August. So you okay, were pregnant at so the same time. We must have been, and I must have been in search of attractive uh, maternity <laughs> wear. And of course we turned it into a segment, but was it traumatizing for your mom or did she have fun? No. She, oh my God. She loved it. She like, she is such a diva. And if now she can say she was on the Today Show, it's like one of her 
brags that she tells anyone. Like anytime the Today Show is on or Katie Kerr comes up, anything, she's like, oh, I was actually on the Today Show. Like I met That Katie is Kerr. so funny. <laughs> well, you know, I met her at an airport, I think yes. not too long ago. And I think it was after you got married and before Ellie got married. I think we were so both too. both married at the same place, Cedar yes. Lakes Estates. And I think your mom was so sweet. She told me to call her if I had any questions. Um, but it's we also have place. that in common. And also your very close friend, Emily Bina, who yes. married you, is someone I adore. And um, so we have all these crazy connections. I know. And they've actually all been guests on this show. Emily's been on the show. My mother, the sisters of Cedar Lakes. Um, Joel was on this show. And also I know you know Joel Gameron. Yeah. Both are the, uh, you know, huge fans of Joel. So it is very funny. So I'm so glad we're connecting. Me too. I'm so happy to have you on. And I feel like you've been such a, I mean, obviously my childhood watching the Today Show, you were a huge part of my life, but especially recently, because I actually chose to listen to your book via audio. I love doing that, especially with my son. Like it just allows me to listen while I'm also taking him for walks and stuff like that. But I love when the author is the one reading the book. And I really loved how you guys did it because you also included segments from the real interviews that you were referencing. And it was so well done. I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I feel like I've been hearing you like nonstop (laughs) for the past few weeks. So you probably recognize my voice at this point and hear me in your sleep, but you know, it's been so gratifying because uh, people ha- are really responding to the book if they're either reading it, but the audiobook seems to be really captivating people. And it was fun for us to put it together almost like a narrative podcast where we were able to insert conversations or interviews or even the letter that Sullivan yeah. Ballou wrote his wife, Sarah, before he was killed in the Battle of Bull Run that we read at my husband's funeral. And so um, I think think those touches, I think, really transport people as they're listening. And it's nice that I don't have to do all the dialogue, uh, but I can actually insert the real thing, which I think makes it a lot more fun. Now, I haven't listened to it. Yeah. Well, that's people always have a hard time listening to their own voice. Like I can't really well, listen to, to that. I, I know what you mean. I think, you know, I felt that way at first when I started in the business. Of course, after all these years, I'm kind of well familiar. I don't I don't cringe when I hear my voice as much as I used to. But I, I would love to listen to the produced final product because I think Lisa Khan, who produced it, did an amazing job. And I couldn't imagine anyone else reading my story than me. It was a pain in the butt to do. It took eight days and we had to fashion kind of a a makeshift studio in my house with pillows and blankets and make a little cave, like a little fort like you did when (laughs) you were five. Um, And it was exhausting to read 75 pages a day, but I did it and I'm really, really glad I did. I loved it so much. And I was listening to it while my mom was reading it alongside me. And so we would like converse about it. And she also loved the book, but I do think that listening to it on audio gives it an extra touch of personalization. And I feel that way about, I listen actually to a lot of books on audio and I can kind of relate it. My husband listened to the Matthew McConaughey book on audio. And like, that was another voice that's just 
it gives that extra touch when you're listening to the actual person relay the message that they wrote. Plus, Matthew McConaughey's voice is so oh, distinctive. So you magnificent. Know, it must have been really fun because he's got that kind of twang. And then he's got this quality of his voice where, you know, it almost it feels like he's kind of talking with his mouth almost yeah. closed. Do you know all what right, I mean? All right, he all doesn't, right. he, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, his book is so popular. I have to listen to mm-hmm. it. I avoided, I avoided reading memoirs for the last couple of years because I didn't want to be influenced by yeah. other people's writings. I didn't want to feel like, oh, my my story isn't interesting, <laughs> or I have to do X, Y, or Z. Jennifer Gray just uh text message it messaged me and said she had really enjoyed my memoir and she was just like consuming uh memoirs like crazy and because she's writing her own but she's taking the totally opposite tack that I did she's she's reading every memoir she can get her hands on they're so interesting to me and honestly after listening to yours I'm fascinated because I can't imagine having such detailed memory of so much of my life. And I want to get into the book because obviously it's very fresh for me as I just finished listening to it, but I'm curious just off the bat, what was the inspiration for this book and why did you decide to really go there as the title obviously alludes to and why now? Well, you know, I sort it was more like, why not now? I had Mm -hmm. never written a book like this. I never told my story I'm at a place in my career where I started my own media company along with my husband three years ago. We're doing all kinds of different projects. I have a newsletter, a a podcast. We're doing videos. We have a shop on our website where we're supporting uh, brands that for all the right reasons that whose values are aligned with ours, who give back environmentally sustainable, female founded, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm doing such a a variety of things, but I don't have any kind of corporate pressure. I'm not working for a network right now. And it's nice that I have this freedom and that's quite liberating. So I just felt like if not now, when people like you, Cameron, who are, you know, Ellie's age, probably remember me a bit from their childhoods. Of course. People who are my contemporaries remember me from you know, watching me as they, as we all kind of grew older together. And I thought if I wait too long uh, uh, and not being on daily television, uh, I become more distant to readers. And so I thought while people still kind of either grew up with me or grew older with me, I should go ahead and put my story out there. Plus, I don't know, 2020 was a good marker for me because I got into television news, really in 1979. So let's just round up to 1980. And that was a 40 year chunk of US history that I was able to witness. And I was able to use that as a backdrop, how, how our society has really evolved. And as I said, in the prologue, you know, a lot has been written about me, a lot of people, you know, when you're a public figure, a lot of people, you become a an avatar for all kinds of things and all kinds of people. And they project all sorts of things on you. I was just talking to my brother-in-law this morning. He's like, there's the you out there, the public figure you, and then there's the you I know. 
And I think people become, uh, you know, almost these objets, if you will, you know, cultural objets. And I don't know why I use the French pronunciation of that, but, you know, and instead of kind of real flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to share my story from my perspective and let people know who I really am, how I really think, and do it in a very open way that would assess the things that happen have happened in my life that were caused for great celebration, you know, the triumphs, but also the disappointments and my flaws and shortcomings. So mm-hmm. it was almost like a therapy session in a way. And I, I wanted it to be just extremely honest because I don't like these books that just sugarcoat things or say only the good things that happen because life is messy. Adriana, who worked with me, um, I hired her after she wrote her senior senior thesis at Notre Dame about me and sort of broadcast journalism, you know, wanted to call it the messy parts. And I think that would have been a good title too, because, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody's life, if they live long enough and are lucky enough to live long enough, has messy parts, you know, disappointments and, and and great things as well. So that was a very long-winded answer and please feel free to edit it. <laughs> no, it was so helpful because also, I mean, I'm a huge proponent of sharing the honesty and all aspects of our lives, whether it's the good or are. the bad. And I mean, that's really why I make content to show all aspects of our lives and the ups and the downs. And I'm curious in the book you mentioned, and it's something I really resonate with that you used to be a people pleaser and you were always recruiting people for quote unquote team Katie. And this is something I'm working on personally because I had this mix where I was a big people pleaser, but I also was like, if you got on the wrong side of me, watch out. So not like a complete people pleaser, but I'm trying to be better now as I'm doing work in a public fashion of sorts. It's really hard to not let certain people's opinions affect me. And when I'm trying to decide what type of content to produce, you know, everyone has an opinion of what they want to see, but I, I truthfully cannot please everyone. And that's something I'm working through in lots of therapy right now. I'm curious, when did you feel like you let go of that need to please others? Because in contradiction of this book, like it's, it's incredible. It shares a lot of your story. I love that you're very honest about your shortcomings as well, but it's definitely not pleasing everyone included. So how did, how did you let go of that? And how did you get to a place where you're comfortable writing a book like this? Well, you know, my husband would probably say I'm still a people pleaser, you know, and there's just no way when people criticize you, especially in a public forum, uh, that it's not going to smart. Right. And, you know, if somebody writes uh, a comment about my book, like, I'm glad she's self-aware. I'm like, what does she mean by that? Why is she saying that? You know, what's the underlying message there? Um, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I still struggle with it. It's not as if I have just abandoned my desire to have people like me. Um, but I think in the world we live in, especially, and in the culture we have created through social media, where everyone has a voice, um, there is just 
no way you have to be so vanilla <laughs> to have and and even then people are going to criticize you for being vanilla <laughs> right. so there's just there's just no way in in the world we live in to please everyone and i think perhaps in the old days when there wasn't social media and people would have to write letters to like a show critic, you know, and I write about that, you right. know, people writing letters, criticizing me, or they didn't like my dress or my hairstyle. And, um, you know, I think you can, you can think that that was, you know, those people are anomalies, but the fact is we're just living in, in these times where, where people feel very comfortable expressing expressing themselves. I just looked at some article about something and I'd never seen this. It said, remember, there's a human at the other end of these comments. I thought that was so interesting. Um, and I just think people, people just forget that, you know, that that they're real people. I think at some point you just have to sort of say, hey, this is who I am. In some cases, you know, I wanted to set the record straight that mm -hmm. there had been, you know, certain narratives that had been allowed to go unchecked that just weren't true. So it was important for me to actually tell the truth about right. some of these situations. And, um, you know, I think I think I was pretty fair. I think mm -hmm. that, um, you know, I, I was very honest about sort of my treatment at CBS, particularly at 60 Minutes, which was was very hard to comprehend and understand and deal with to, um, you know, everything else. But But I think that I was really fair and ironically very complimentary of a lot of my colleagues. And that was... And things, you know, it was a, it was kind of a a lesson in the reality of the media ecosystem to see how things got twisted and distorted that were right. never even in there, or rewritten or you know strung together in a way that did not had bear, bore no resemblance to the book. But I think that's that's the modern day media, and mm -hmm. that was disconcerting. But um, you know, I feel really comfortable with who I am and, and, and what I wrote and I love my book. And once in a while I'll sit down and read it and think, wow, this is really good. You know, listen, not everybody's going to like me. Not everybody's going to like my book, but for the people who do find it worthwhile and feel like it gave them something to think about, or they, it resonated with their own life or they learned a little something about persistence or resilience or how to handle disappointment, then I think, you know, I've, I've achieved my goal. Plus, you know, just the very nature of my life, this crazy unexpected life, it's interesting, you know? Absolutely. I've, I've, I've had a lot of interesting experiences that I think people will find, um, you know, interesting to read about. I mean, it was fascinating to read about. You've lived a very interesting life, but also for me, I definitely resonated with a lot of it. I mentioned the people pleaser aspect. There are other parts I want to get into as well, but I'm curious while we're talking about the public's um, misconception or conception of who we are and people's ability to 
just put their opinions out there with no shame or wherewithal over who is receiving the comment. Another thing you mentioned in the book is struggling with eating disorders as a younger person. And, you know, you mentioned the generational body shaming that you witnessed. And that's something that I very much resonate with and have struggled a lot with unlearning and rewiring my brain and the way I speak to myself or speak about myself or speak to others. And it's really stems from being in a place where at a young age, I watched my grandmother pick apart every aspect of her body and critique herself And that was what my mother was raised watching. And she then also went through similar things and struggled with an eating disorder. And, you know, it was a very interesting time in our lives where a few years ago, I started to really work on my mental voice, like the voice inside my head. And I would hear my mom critique herself. And I sat her down and I was like, listen, I love you. You are a bad bitch. You are beautiful. But the way you speak to yourself is not acceptable. And if you want to spend time with your grandchildren, which I wasn't pregnant at the time, but I said, if you want to spend time with your grandchildren in the future, this has to stop because we are, we are ending this here. And I think your story of dealing with that was very relatable, but I'm also curious, like, what was that like dealing with personal body image struggles, then being in such a public eye? Because of course, unfortunately media, especially at that time, went very quickly to attack a female's body or dress or hair or things that do not matter. And that are never being commented on when it's a male anchor or actor or whatever. What was it like to deal with all of the commentary while you had a Mm -hmm. history of struggling with body image? Yeah, that's, you know, it was interesting because I think fortunately part of my appeal when I got to the Today Show was that I wasn't this lithe, tall, thin, model-y person, that I was normal. You know, I was a normal weight. Uh, I was, I, I, you know, looked like somebody's sister or friend or coworker. And I think because of that, uh, I felt by and large really comfortable for the most part. Um, you know, I was still self-conscious. I always thought I looked too heavy or, you know, that I didn't look good in certain things. But but for the most part, I think because America sort of accepted me and seemed to like me <laughs> and um, gravitate to me, that I think that assuage some of the insecurity I felt about my body. And, um, you know, it was still hard because, you know, I never, I mean, there were moments where I just didn't feel good about the way I looked, or I wish that I had been taller and thinner or looked a different, you know, looked differently. But I think I, I started to kind of accept that my body type was just my body type, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that I wanted to be healthy and in good shape, but I was always, always trying to lose 10 or 15 pounds. You know, I woke up every morning saying, I'm going to be good today, whatever that means. My daughter and I talked about like placing value judgments on what is good and what is bad when it comes to food and how much that Fs you up. Yep. You know, 
Um, and so my conversation, you know, so I, I don't know if I criticized my body in front of my girls. I don't think I did, but I know that some of the pressures I felt growing up about losing weight or being thin probably, uh, permeated into our conversations. I know my daughters would probably tell you that, that it did to a certain extent. Um, and all the, all the messages that we receive from, from mass media and from pop culture, you know, this was way before body positivity or body neutrality. Mm -hmm. And, um, as a result, I think, uh, you know, it's, it still had echoes into the way I raised my girls, even subconsciously. And, uh, and I still today, you know, wake up and think, oh, you know, especially as you get older and your body changes, you can talk to your mom about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, your hormones change and then you're like, oh, geez, you know, what is happening here? Um, and I wish I could, I still haven't gotten to the point I'm embarrassed to admit where I can just say I'm strong. I can get out of bed. You know, I appreciate my body for what it is. I'm still always trying to improve it or make it better. And it's just such a time suck and such a, a, a ridiculous exercise but I think that programming and that cultural conditioning, honestly, Cameron, is really hard to let go of. It's so hard to let go of. Honestly, it's something I'm still very much working on as well. Um, it's really, really hard to let go of. And I want to also ask while we're speaking about this and, you know, we talk about the media's depiction of certain people and how it does it decides what story they want to tell. You'd mentioned this in the book as well, that like there was almost this quote unquote raging diva storyline that you were kind of given in a sense. And I, I really think it's bullshit because we've never in our lives heard any type of media focused on a male who probably had the same asks or work environment or style of work or any of that where they're just like, oh, they're they're a good businessman. They're great at their job. But if a female has these asks or needs or just is serious about their work, it's like, oh, well, you're a raging diva. And yeah. I absolutely hate that. And I came, I worked in the corporate world for five years out of college in a very, very male dominated industry in sales and trading. And I hated that I had to think about how I put myself forward, whether it's like, am I being too assertive? Cause I don't want to be a bitch, but I want to make sure I'm not walked all over, um, where I don't think a yeah. male ever has to deal with that. So when you reflect on your career, do you feel like you were unfairly given these types of titles in different companies? Or also, do you feel like there was this false narrative by the media to almost like pit these female anchors against each other that was never being done with the males. Oh, definitely. I talk a lot about that. You still see it play out like in my book as if like I'm I'm only really complimentary of my female colleagues and I laugh and talk about sort of the the whole catfight narrative that gets perpetuated. You know, we still have so much junk when it comes to 
understanding women and power and how to be a leader. And if you're a woman and how you have to kind of, as you said, set, you know, second guess yourself, you say something, you want something done, you're direct, you're not a jerk about it, but you walk away thinking, oh my God, oh my God, how did I come off when I just had that interaction? And I think so many women have that. And, you know, men just don't have that pressure that they have to be nice all the time. Like they aren't, and they, they don't have to be, of course, you don't want people to be jerks or insensitive or cruel or mean, but if women are just like, not even, and demanding is even too strong a word, but if they say what they mean and mean what they say, suddenly they are cast as the, you know, Cruella de Vil, you know, and, and I still think that I was, I was very at times demanding. I think I talk about that in the book, especially when I felt like the Today Show was slipping and I had to kind of make sure we, we really stayed on top of news stories and still to this day, I'm like, oh, did I have too much hubris? Was I, un, uh, you know, unreasonable, um, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, then we just are full of self-doubt. It seems like as women, especially, we have to really almost consider how we communicate every single word. And it's so exhausting. It's <laughs> exhausting. Know? I, I remember during the election, I was getting very heated on my stories, just being like, I, I cannot hand like just angry, straight out angry. And I was getting some DMs like, oh, my God, calm down. Like, why are you being so in like, why are you so angry? And I'm like, why is it such a bad thing for a woman to be angry? Like, we should be angry at what is happening in this country at times. Like, if I'm not angry then I'm missing something like I'm not paying yeah. enough attention and yeah. it just really bothered me. And another There's thing, a that good book, Rebecca Traster wrote a good book about women and anger. Um, I'll that, check it out. That reminds me that I'd like to, to look at that again, because I don't know, it's, it's so complicated and it's so ingrained culturally. And from the images we see as little girls about how how females are supposed to act, whether it's mm -hmm. like fairy tales, the princesses. Um, yeah. And all these things that I think reinforce stereotypes unfairly. It's um, that when you try to get out of that box, you're often met with, with a, not only resistance, but a lot of discomfort. And I think discomfort mm -hmm. is based in fear and, and, and that fear translates to anger or resentment or trying to put, put someone down. So I think the psychology of all of it is really fascinating. I do too. And it's honestly something I'm very aware of raising a son right now of the books that we're reading to him. You know, there's this, I just did a TikTok on this of the books that we're loving where we're teaching vulnerability and emotional intelligence. And if anyone gives me a book about some prince saving a princess, it goes right in the trash. Like I have no patience for that. Um, and but that's really smart because I think from the get-go and obviously Liam is too little, but you know, the other thing I think that's really important to teach sons is, you know, chores, like mm -hmm. teach them how to do, he's too little, but <laughs> teach him how to do laundry, 
teach him how to wash the dishes. Make sure that he sees your husband doing. Oh, things those are all Joe's house. tasks. Joe you is know? amazing at all of those things. Right. So he but that, but will be women, teaching Liam as well. I always, I always mention that Melinda Gates in her book talks about the fact that women do seven years more domestic labor, taking care of the children, taking care of the household chores, going to the supermarket than their husbands do. Yep. And I think that's because they have been conditioned to see those as female jobs. And mm -hmm. if women are to excel in the workforce and to live their full potential, that can happen. And one of the things that you know, I was so happy to write about is as Jay was such an equal partner to me and took care of so many things because I was so exhausted in the early, early years of our, of our daughter's lives. But he, he, he was such a full partner to me in every sense of the word. And I was so grateful for that. Um, and that he was able to model it for my daughters. Sadly, you know, they were only six and two when he died. But, you know, to be able to say that about uh, a husband back in in the 90s, you know, was, was something I was really proud of. Absolutely. It's something that I'm in internally, eternally grateful that Joe is so helpful. I mean, unfortunately, I think it should be the norm, but unfortunately, I don't think it is. And I I'm very grateful that he is so hyper involved because otherwise I don't think I would be where I am today in postpartum. I struggled a lot in postpartum and it's something I actually wanted to talk to you about because you were almost the face of working moms at that time, which I imagine came with a lot to deal with and to always be thinking how you presented yourself as this working mom. But I also want to say that you talk about struggling with, um, intrusive thoughts in postpartum. And that was something I really, really struggled with. And I have personally had a very hard time with the narrative of my job. Like, how do I describe what I do? What am I, what, what will I tell Liam? My job is when he's older, almost as somewhat embarrassment over what I do. And you had a line in the book that honestly, I think will forever have changed my life because you wrote that you were dealing with postpartum intrusive thoughts, but at the time, no one was really talking about it. And you said something along the lines of, I give a lot of credit to the mommy bloggers in today's world who are talking about these things and making women feel less alone. Because honestly, that's the whole point of my content. I just want to make people feel less alone. So what was it like, I'm curious, for you going through postpartum while also then returning to such a demanding job and having this pressure of, kind of being the face of what a working mom looks like at that time. Yeah. You know, it was, I remember I didn't tell anybody, you know, I was so freaked out about, you know, I was, so we should probably explain to your listeners that intrusive thoughts are like, you worry that you're going to hurt your baby. I think it's that overwhelming sense of responsibility mm -hmm. of such a helpless, fragile creature. It's and terrifying. It, it is, it, it's, it's, it's terrifying. And, and, you know, I used to worry, am I going to drop Ellie? Am I going yeah. to leave her on the side of the road? And I remember a friend of mine reading the book and saying, you shouldn't put that in. And I'm like, why not? Uh, you know, it, it, it made me feel like something was wrong with me. It made me feel ashamed. It made me scared Same. and I couldn't talk to anybody about it. And 
only later when, you know, thanks to Google, did I kind of understand that this is a pretty common part of postpartum depression, this kind Mm -hmm. of, it's almost, um, you know, you're, we're almost wired to be too hypervigilant about right. It's almost protecting us. Yeah. It's sort of, it's sort of, I don't know, it kind of morphs into this feeling of being scared, uh, that you're going to hurt your child. I think it's, it's a really fascinating and interesting phenomenon. I think there's still people out there, Cameron, who probably have those scary thoughts and are afraid to talk about it and afraid to share it with anybody. And don't understand that a lot of people experience that and it's perfectly normal and they can get help or, you know, but just talking about it and, and understanding that they're not alone or they're not some demented weirdo, you know, yeah, um, uh, was really important to me. And, um, you know, I think it dissipated, uh, after probably six months or so, um, and, and I didn't experience that anymore, but at the time it was really, really scary. It's all consuming. I call them final destination thoughts. And I've talked about them a lot on my platform because for me, they were, if I was walking near, um, a, through a doorway, I thought I was going to slam his head on the side of the wall or a corner of our kitchen Island or, and on any type of wooden floor. But the main one was I would wake up hallucinating that he was in my bed and I had accidentally like suffocated him in the sheets. And it felt so real. I would wake up and punch Joe because I thought the pillow he was cuddling was Liam. Like, And I talked about them on my platform being like, I'm kind of freaked the hell out. Like, what is going on? And the and amount of women, I got so many messages saying that I, like, I've experienced the same thing. I thought I was losing my mind. Oh my gosh. And like, mine didn't last too long into postpartum. I obviously spoke about it with my psychiatrist and my OBGYN and I'm actually on medication. So we did end up increasing my dosage for postpartum depression, but it was really terrifying. Honestly, it it really, really confused me. And then I was scared to go to sleep. Um, so I just really resonated with that part of the book personally. And I loved that you include that portion of it. And, you know, I really think it's going to help a lot of women who I hope so, you know, that's why I wrote about it, you know, because I thought, you know, I know things have changed and, you know, to your point, women share a lot. And that's one of the really good things about social media. But I still think there are probably women out there who I hope will read it and think, oh, okay, well, if I have a child, I'll be aware of this. Or, oh gosh, I what I I this is what happened to me. Or even, oh, this is what I'm feeling now. I'm in it right now. And I can mm-hmm. and I can get help. Yes, absolutely. Um, I do want to just circle back to your career quickly before we finish. I mean, obviously you have had a magnificent career filled with so many accomplishments. It's hard to even begin to list them. I'm curious because I think we learn more from people's mistakes than their accomplishments. Do you have any regrets throughout your career or something that you wish you could go back and have done differently? Well, I think, I think a couple of things. I think I probably should have done more due diligence about going to CBS. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a really important step for uh, me. I thought it was an important step for women. Um, I think that I think that the expectations were so high, and that my 
my mission, if you will, to reimagine an evening newscast was probably unrealistic given Mm -hmm. that the format has existed for decades and you can tinker around the edges, but you can't really reimagine it because it's an older audience. They like what they like. And just being a female would have been a huge change in and of itself, right? So I think I regret not doing, not thinking more fully about what I was expected to do and if it was even possible. Um, And I think probably a syndicated show, even though I made great friends and I love the people who, many of the people who worked on the show, I think that you know, I had this attitude, like, I don't want to look like a failure. I have to figure out where I'm going to go next. And Mm -hmm. I, I, I was afraid of taking a beat and thinking, well, what do I want to do? What would be a good place for me? And I think because of that attitude, like you have to have a job to get a job (laughs) that I, I sometimes rushed into things because I didn't, I, I was afraid of looking like a failure. So I think sometimes, um, you know, taking a beat, thinking about what you really love to do and really considering the best place to do that is something that, um, that I regret I didn't do more of. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. And I can only imagine the pressure when you're in the public eye to always have something next and tell people where you're going before you leave, because we all feel that societal pressure to begin with, but we're not nearly as ridiculed or just observed by the rest of the country. Um, Well, I love what you are doing now. Katie Couric Media is awesome. The content you're putting out there is awesome. Everyone make sure that you are signed up to the newsletter because it's really helpful. I love it. Um, Thank you so much for coming on here, for taking the time. This really means the world to me. Honestly, it's so fun to talk to you. And I think what you're doing is awesome. When Liam asks, you know, what do you do, mom? You tell him that you're you're sharing your story and that you're helping people feel less alone. And you're talking to people about things that really matter and that will make their lives better. And um, I mean, I can't think of a more important thing to do than that. And, you know, one of the things I, I, I don't know whether I'm missing the guilt gene a little, but, you know, when I was working, when I was younger, I was so fulfilled by my work and felt like I was almost, you know, I got into journalism because I think it's a public service to help people understand the world. And I I didn't feel guilty working while my kids were little. First of all, I mean, I was very, very lucky because I'm never the poster child for the working mom because I could afford really good childcare, even though mm-hmm. I do have that story about my nanny. Yes. Oh my God, that was wild. Oh my God, Doris. <laughs> but, um, Crazy. But, but, you know, I think, I think it's quality, not quantity of the time you spend with your kids. You really need to be present when you're with them, not on your phone, you know, Mm -hmm. and not distracted, but really focused on, on your child. But I think ultimately kids do well seeing their parents doing things in the world. I agree. And, and I think because of that, I never felt really that guilty about working. Of course, I felt guilty about missing 
some moments in, in my children's lives. But I think children, you know, my girls are both very independent. And I think kids do better with a little room to mm-hmm. learn and make mistakes and grow and sort of suffocating them or uh, smothering them or being, you know, too helicoptery or too snowboard, snow, what do you call it? Uh, uh, snow plowy, where you yeah. just remove all the obstacles in their way. It, 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 it's not good. So I think, you know, how they say parents need to put their oxygen masks on before mm-hmm. they give it to their children. I think if, if, if moms and dads can find things they're really passionate about and really care about beyond just parenting, even though I, and, and I respect stay at home moms, I'm not saying that, but, but to also like not forget about yourself and absolutely and feeding your passions, your kids are going to see that and you're going to be happier probably. And your kids are going to be happier and you know, and, and, and they, they grow up and they fly away Yes. and you want to make sure when they do, you know, they say roots and wings, right? That's what you need to give children. And you need to make sure when they do that, you're not left, even if you're an empty nester, that you have something to put in that nest mm-hmm. and something to do with that nest. So that's just, that's just absolutely my opinion. No, I agree. I wrote a piece and I wrote the last line was, I want to fill up my cup so that his cup is overflowing. Like I cannot fill from an empty cup. And so for his cup to overflow, I need some stuff for myself as well. So thank you so much for coming on here for everyone listening. I mean, they know where to follow you. Katie Kirk, (laughs) everyone knows your name. I don't even have to ask where should we find you? I'll put it all in the show notes, but I really appreciate you coming on here. And you guys, I highly recommend reading or honestly listening to going there because it's a great book. Thank you so much, Cameron, and have a great holiday. You too. Wow. Best interview ever. I mean, that was just so wonderful. I still can't believe that I interviewed Katie freaking Couric. Thank you guys. Because without this Freckle Tweety family and all of the listeners and supporters and cheerleaders, this would have never happened. I love you guys so much. I don't want to waste a lot of your time because I know this is a longer episode and honestly, My brain fog post-COVID is so bad that words are not coming to me that easily and I don't want to just ramble. So, you know, mainly just want to say thank you, Katie, for coming on. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, wonderful community, for being a part of the Freckle Foodie family and for always supporting me and wanting the best and just being freaking awesome. I just did my vision board for 2022 and I'm going to share it on my Instagram probably around the time this episode releases. So you'll probably see it, but there's just so much I'm excited for this year. And I think we're going to do some pretty freaking amazing things. Thank you as always for listening. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, do all the things. I would love to hear your feedback on this episode. You can message me or honestly, the best place would be to comment at Pod or over on my Instagram at Freckled Foodie. And obviously be sure you are keeping up with all the amazing stuff Katie is doing over on Instagram at Katie Couric. 
Thank you guys so much for listening to the show. I love doing this more than anything in the world. If you could be so kind as to rate and or review the show, share a screenshot on your Instagram story, whatever you feel like doing to show some love, I would really appreciate it. Obviously follow at Pod on Instagram and me at Freckled Foodie for more content. Thank you for being a part of the FF fam and I hope you have a wonderful day.